Today's episode of The Rewatchables is brought to you by Greats. Greats is Brooklyn's first sneaker company with classic styles for both men and women. Greats made the best for less. All of their shoes are versatile for every moment, casual or formal, including bestsellers like the all-leather Royale lace-up and Wooster slip-on. It's the perfect gift for the holidays, and now you can save 15% off your first purchase when you go to greats.com and use the code REWATCHABLES. That's G-R-E-A-T-S dot com, promo code REWATCHABLES. Hello, and welcome to the Rewatchables. We are talking about the 2007 noir classic, Zodiac. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com, and I am joined by The Ringer's editor-in-chief, Sean Fennessy. Hello. And my good friend and longtime podcasting partner, longer-time friend, Andy Greenwald. You can't say that was my handwriting. You have no <laughs> way of proving that. Boys go around helping people in the night. I'm done with them. They don't need much help. The Zodiac Killer has come to San Francisco. Dear editor, I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. He wants his code in the afternoon edition. The killer still at large. Got any hard suspects? I'm up to around 500. He's hunting humans. He's going to catch this guy or not. He's still out there, Dave. I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I wouldn't tell you. Who is this? Zodiac. Rated R. In theaters March 2nd. We're here to talk about Zodiac, and I could not be more excited. This is my favorite film of the 21st century. It's my favorite David Fincher film. I think it's one of the great American crime films, up there with Chinatown, The Maltese Falcon, um, Police Academy 3. Police Academy 3. Should we clear out for an isopod? Running Scared with Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal is also a great one. Can we just do a quick, just to sort of set the temperature of this podcast, how many uh, pen strokes do you require to make a K? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a two, two I'm stroke a, I'm guy. I'm a two stroke guy as well. Chris? I'm not going to answer. I don't want to incriminate myself. Very you know, I've been working this, this okay. job at the back of a hardware store for a long time, <laughs> and it, it pays my rent in my trailer with my, with my wild animals. Little known fact, you like to go by Patrick, your middle name, which is unusual <laughs> for you. Guys, um, this is an interesting one. You know, with different rewatchables, there are different sort of circumstances. Sean and I just did a Dark Knight rewatchables, and obviously that's an iconic film that changed the movie business arguably for the next, the 10 years that followed it. Can't say the same thing about Zodiac. Zodiac was released in March of 2007 after missing sort of the 2006 awards right. push that it was, it was aiming for, but Fincher could not get it below three hours. And there was some disagreement with the studio, even though he had full final cut, they wanted an under three hour film. Those, they wanted those a, heart, a heartwarming swine. holiday picture. They did. They did not get that. No. They did not get a box office hit. Zodiac made $33 million domestic box office um, on a budget of $65 million, most of which, most of which was spent on um, David Fincher recreating San Francisco digitally, but we will get to that. Just the construction of the Coit Tower alone yeah, cost exactly. more than the Incredible Hulk in the new <laughs> They were like, clear out, Peter Jackson. We got another job. Hey, San Franciscans, that wasn't the Coit Tower. I know It that. was critically acclaimed, I would say. It was appreciated, but it was not fawned over. Uh, it made... A fair amount of ten best lists, but given its stature today, you would not think it. You would not reading the reviews back in two thousand seven. You would not think this is a contender for one of the greatest films of the twenty first century. Uh, it was nominated for Palme d'Or at Cannes, but for the most part, missed out on almost any kind of award recognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it placed twelfth in the BBC's films of the twenty first century list, and it was it came at an interesting time for a lot of these a lot of the people involved. Uh, Fincher had not made a feature since two thousand and two's Panic Room. It kind of been kicking around. Um, I don't know. Panic Room 
probably not going to be a rewatchable. No. Even in mid-level the future, hit. You know, that, uh, that's Kristen Stewart in that, though, yeah. right? Yeah, and Jodie Foster. Mm-hmm. And he had been working on what he envisioned as a miniseries with movie stars adaptation of Black Dahlia, James Elroy's. Which, which is hilarious because in 2007, that was a pipe dream. You could exactly. never do something like that. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about Fincher moving into Netflix territory with House of Cards yeah. years later. You said yesterday that he sort of invented Netflix with that idea five years before it really took hold. Yeah, I'm sure he would like to have that payoff as well but, if he had invented Netflix. But I would say, and I'm sure we're going to get more into this later in the conversation, that in many ways Zodiac is an interesting conversation with between film and TV if mm-hmm. you watch it a certain way because – it has certainly the breadth, storytelling breadth of a television show. It covers many, many years. It's essentially episodic. And its need for resolution uh, is deeply uncinematic, I think, in a lot of ways. It's also incredibly talky. You yeah. know, it does yes. not, it, it's kind of formless, and it's a lot of just people in moving from room to room figuring out what's on a piece of paper, which yeah, and, is and, and, more Mad Men-ish than it is Seven-ish. And, yeah. And, in a way, it's a procedural. It's about how people do their jobs or w- what unsettles them when they're unable to do their jobs. Fincher has said, way. I don't think of this as a serial killer movie. I think of this as a newspaper movie. It's not a process by which somebody dismembers other people. It's not that kind of movie. It's a movie about the search for some kind of truth. The human minds need to make sense of something that's randomly chaotic. It's mm-hmm. obviously something he would revisit quite heavily with Mindhunter, the, ca- the show that came out this year that has a lot of parallels with, Zod- uh, with Zodiac. Adam Neiman writing for The Ringer this year uh, on, in honor of, of this film's 10-year anniversary, said more than any American movie of the past decade, Zodiac accepts and embraces irresolvability, mm-hmm. which may be why it is so hypnotically rewatchable. In Zodiac, the fabric of reality is stretched so tight over the action that it threatens to break at any moment, except that it doesn't. The twist is that there isn't one. So I thought we could start talking about this movie's rewatchability, which I think we, for the most part, agree on that it is rewatchable, <laughs> obviously. I mean, we obviously are at all of this movie. Its inclusion in the rewatchables is, the, I think, similar to the way that Godfather 2 is rewatchable in the sense that it is this thing that you can have on in the background and notice new things every time, fall for different characters, become obsessed with different details every time. But Andy, is it the irresolvability that Mm -hmm. Naaman writes beautifully, but is very difficult to say? Uh, (laughs) Is that what makes this movie rewatchable? Well, yes and no. I think the movie is kind of a trick because it's almost three hours long and there are incredible, there's an incredible range of actors and character actors in it giving great performances. There are a lot of, as you said, surprises and things you might not notice. It, in some ways, if it was just on TV and we're doing the, it would pass the flip test because you would have to stop Mm -hmm. because which you would know, you would just get the vibe of what part of the film you're in, in the same way a Godfather film or Boogie Nights. The thing about it, though, is that it, it settles in, but it unsettles you as it settles in, if that makes sense. It yeah. is not an easy rewatch, um, partly because there is no, um, to use Boogie Nights as an example, that has a very familiar arc of the character. Are we tuning in before New Year's Eve or are we tuning in afterwards? Are we mm-hmm. on the upswing or are we on the downswing? This movie is essentially one long digressive downswing. And so I found it rewarding to revisit it, even another time for this podcast, but it was not exactly... Fun isn't the word I would use to describe this movie, which is I definitely do not. I, I definitely don't mean that in a pejorative sense. It is not a fun rewatch, sure. but it is a rewarding rewatch. I think one of the things that is confusing about it is a lot of the scenes seem the same. And <laughs> I watched this movie again over the course of three nights because it is quite long. And 
doing doing that, it was very difficult to figure out where I was previously. Yeah. And I think you're right that when you rewatch it, you do learn new things every single time or you notice a slight smirk on someone's face or you notice that the camera is on a boot Mm -hmm. or is on a watch or very specific choices. And it's like a very precise movie, but it's very repetitive by purpose Mm -hmm. because it says when you're a newspaper person or when you're a police officer, your job is the same every day. Mm -hmm. You go to the same office, you think about the same things, you look at the same paperwork and you're examining things in a very specific way. And so Fincher has to make that a cool movie because mm-hmm. he makes cool movies by design. That's the thing he's most interested in is something that is like a ticking clock. And there's a tension there between how to make this fun and how to show drudgery. And there, even though it's about a serial killer, there is some drudgery. In a way, we, we, and you, Chris, you mentioned Mindhunter. In a way, Mindhunter attempts to either correct or address some of the connective tissue of this movie. Because essentially what Zodiac is about is what happens when a round peg meets a square hole world. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. They have these systems to to protect people or to inform people. The newspaper men are a very certain type in the beginning of the film. They write their story. They bang out their copy. They have drinks and they move on. The movie drags because the police can't solve it. The newspaper men can't write about it. The life doesn't, as we knew, it doesn't work anymore. The case drags. The case drags. And there's and they don't even have a language to comprehend this lack of comprehension, which is actually what Mindhunter is about. It's about the invention of that language. Um, so they are interesting to compare it with each other. But it is a exceptional movie because how many times do we talk about films that we love when we talk about the plot or we talk about a performance? But to talk about a sensation that is that is universal and familiar and the movie communicates that above all else it's a great work movie it, it captures something that it, that reveals itself after you watch it a few times which is the way in which it's very rare in professional life and in life in general for everybody to be synced up with the same level of interest or passion or intensity or engagement about any one thing at any one time so over the course of this film one of the most amazing things to watch is not only um, the way this case de- literally degrades and deteriorates lives in its wake, you know, whether it's Paul Avery played by Robert Downey Jr. or Graysmith and his relationships with other people, but even the police officers, mm-hmm. these guys all have other stuff going on in their lives. Yes. And at various points, Graysmith's obsessed with it, but Toshi is kind of like, uh, yeah, I, I know, but I have a lot of other cases. Also, I'm bullet, like I'm, I'm a big deal. Avery obsessed with it in the beginning in terms of its ability to catapult him maybe to a certain level of notoriety and satisfy his ego. But as the case slowly becomes more personal and destructive, he kind of disappears until he's lost on a houseboat and then on an oxygen tank. It's also low-key a very punishing indictment of the how temporal things are in Hollywood mm-hmm. because at any given moment you could be replaced by Adam Goldberg. <laughs> like it could just like it can happen yeah. like that when yeah. you least expect it. So that's one of the things that I love about it. But as we start talking about it, you can already feel a certain you know, there's a weight to our conversation. There's a little edginess. This is a funny movie. I still stand by that. Especially the first yeah. half of it. The uh, movie is not without its moments of levity and the way in which James Vanderbilt wrote the screenplay and obviously the uniformly excellent actors bring a certain sense of humor and gallows humor, sure, but the humor that comes with when you work with somebody every day, what is the little inside joke that happens? What are the animal crackers? What are the yes. the aqua velva drink that this guy likes? The nicknames people have for each other. And that's what really makes me keep coming back. And I it. would say also, it's an extremely San Francisco movie. In yeah. that it really, not just digitally recaptures a city, but there is a certain vibe. I've never lived there, but I've visited there. I spent time there. And it's like, 
there is something that is small town about it in a way. It is, but in, it is small and warm and intimate and very human. And only in San Francisco could you have a Mark Ruffalo's character be a prominent murder police. Right. Whether he the character the guy was really like that or not, it makes sense for San Francisco that he would have a relationship with Armistead Maupin, who's referenced as a columnist in the in the Chronicle. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a warmth and humanity and kind of small towniness on the edges you know there's these other towns there's Vallejo just across the uh, just across the bridge um it's very much set in a place that suffuses the film and I think that's a sign I mean all good films have a very clear sense of place but it, I think Fincher was smart maybe not uh, financially smart but smart to steer into that aspect it's of almost the film. gothic at times it almost feels it feels like Rebecca you know some of those shots like the taxi cab murder is, is sort of like that, where it's just, where is this happening? It really toggles, though. I mean, you're right that it creates this interesting community. You meet Melvin Belli, who's yeah. this very yeah. famous yeah. lawyer. Right. You know, there are all of these figures that he's he's making you think are a big deal. Like, we're made to believe that Paul Avery matters. I'm not sure that in the history of American mm-hmm. journalism, Paul Avery is but a notable figure. But in those figure. big cities, there were columnists and reporters who had outsized reputations. I remember growing up, Steve Lopez mm-hmm. was a big deal in the yeah. Philadelphia Inquirer, and, and what he, he said kind of changed and the... And then he came here, and had yeah, the same exactly. effect here in LA. And I think that we every one of us probably remembers a local newscaster and then be, was later portrayed by robert downey jr in the soloist yeah that's right that's God. right that's right the bard of american but we, we all grew up you know in in in, in, in cities in the in the late, late 70s and 80s and we remember how these institutions had outsized importance in our lives because mm-hmm. there wasn't anything else to drive the conversation necessarily at that no time. it's true I, I think that it, it goes a long way to establishing place and feeling and time and it was when i think american cities just felt a lot smaller and there's something interesting about that the thing that is most appealing to me in this respect though is i grew up with a police detective for a father and this is a real police detective movie i mean every single one of these cops is a cop like it is the way that they talk the way that they comport themselves the sort of like general air of skepticism around everything Mm -hmm. around every conversation is incredibly resonant for me and uh, conflicting might i add there's something about getting cops right and wrong in movies that is very specific yeah and if you don't get the cops right you care about cops and poker and if you get those things wrong, yeah, those are my those are my fact checking interests. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you want to screw up the history of American politics, don't give a shit. But if you screw up cops and 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 hold them, we're in trouble. Well, it's the skepticism. I mean, one of the greatest scenes in the film is the diner scene and near the end when Gray Smith is at at peak lunatic mm-hmm. and he wakes up um, Tashi, who as at this point has basically said, "I'm going to call the cops. I'm going to kill him." Yep. but can't can't quite let that itch go unscratched. Lee Allen is a leaf from this file. Now, Vallejo is a small town, but it's not that small. How do you put the two of them together? This is a case that's covered both northern and southern California with victims and suspects spread over hundreds of miles. Would you agree? And yes. so Grace Smith's laying it all out, and he has more information than anyone. He has more data, more, more documents. But Tashi is still a cop. And he's like, nope. I can't prove this. Just because you can't prove it doesn't mean it's not true. Easy, dirty, Harry. You don't have evidence. Prove it harder. Yeah. Prove it harder. You're not going to get me. You're not going to get me on that. And and that is a very um, – it can be a frustrating tone in relationship. I mean, that's some of the tone of the film. But it's – again, it's it's rewarding. This movie does something – and I want to get to the awards in just a second. But I, I don't have a word for this. I think it, it, it reminds me a lot – obviously, there's a lot of uh, – I feel very – it's very connected to Godfather 2 and all the President's Men. And there's a certain feel to that. But there's – this movie gives me this sensation where you get about an hour in and you're like, this movie is so exciting. This yes. is, and then you realize that there is another hour and a half to go. That happens in Assassination, assassination of Jesse James, mm-hmm. um, 
where there's like another hour after mm-hmm. Jesse James is killed, where you're just spending time with uh, Robert Ford as he kind of goes on in his life and deals with the guilt. There's this weird thing that happens in certain movies where there's actually an extra movie beyond what you usually remember. And I do find that, you know, that the last two thirds or last third of this movie is you're watching someone go insane. So it's not, it's not exactly pleasant. And then as you get further into the film, the main character's, are stripped away from the film. It's not conventional at all. Mm-hmm. So it's it is it is challenging to watch, but I, there's something about those kinds of movies that actually reward rewatching because you know, you can it's like an album that you didn't get into the second side until 3 years later. Here's something that struck me on the on the most recent viewing, which is when Anthony Edwards who plays um uh, Ruffalo's partner and yeah. he's sort of like Bill Armstrong. Bill Armstrong like a very thorough decent cop. I think Fincher in an interview said he cast Anthony Edwards because he wanted someone who is just decent, who just comes across as reliable, trustworthy, likable guy, when he leaves the case and leaves the film. Mm-hmm. When, I was first, when I first saw the movie, I was like, well, this is just the nature of this movie. Pages are turned, you know, even down, he sort of disappears. Then I, then I paid more attention to the scene when Graysmith tries to reach him. And Ruffalo, who's generally pretty laconic throughout the film, he's very relaxed presence on screen, stiffens, and he says, do not. He is out. Yeah. He wanted to be out. And in a very subtle and really moving way, you you begin to understand the the gravity of the work that they had been doing, of what this case could do to someone, and how to be free of both the case and, in a really interesting way, of this film is a gift. Yeah. Let's get into some of the awards. Okay. Uh, I want to start – let's start at the top. Let's start with the most rewatchable scene because this is a sort of complicated film to celebrate mm-hmm. any one scene over the other. So I tried to mix it up with a series of – more light scenes, and then obviously the darker ones. Now, uh, the cold open, the first murder, is considered one of the crowning achievements in Fincher's career, so I had to include that. And I also included the credit sequence, which sort of sets up the world we're living in with incredible economy and panache. And might be the most, you know, for a movie that's so, for a director who's so stylish and for a movie that's so visually dense, this is one of the only, like, quote-unquote set pieces outside of the murders it's the trolley of mail that's bringing the first Zodiac letter to the publisher and editor mm-hmm. of the Chronicle. The Grace Smith Avery Bar scene with the Aqua Velva, which is their sort of coming together. Um, the Napa murder. Mm-hmm. The This is the Zodiac speaking with Melvin. The entire sequence, just the, the talk show. Mm-hmm. And I am not the Zodiac, the the interrogation scene. Yeah, my, I have one vote and one honorable mention. Sure. I think the honorable mention is the scene Andy just uh, identified, which is at the very end of the movie, which is... Graysmith recreating Arthur Lee Allen and uh, I believe Jacqueline is her name, the first the first victim. And when he says door to door, it's 50 yards. Yep. I've walked it. Darlene Farron worked at the Vallejo House of Pancakes on the corner of Tennessee and Carroll. Arthur Lee Allen lived in his mother's basement on Fresno Street. Door to door. That is less than 50 yards there's like a we solved it moment yeah. feeling it's the only real like mm-hmm. we've solved it moment in the movie except for the this the questioning of arthur lee allen yeah where he they the three detectives go and visit him in, in his office or like i'm not even totally sure where he it's works at the factory. it's, it's, it's a break room in the factory yeah. okay and it's just this long protracted we got him you know where he yeah. keeps saying things and you keep wondering why he's saying them and it is that that thing we've come to understand and is identified in this movie is serial killers want to be caught yeah. and so they say things like those knives i had in my trunk were bloody because i killed a chicken right and you're like what what just happened here? 
The knives I had in my car with the blood on them, that blood came from a chicken that I killed for dinner. What? I had knives in my car that weekend. Maybe Bill saw them and called the other officer on me. Well, we'll be checking in on that. And all the unspoken communication between them when they see the watch and they look at the watch, that scene is just spectacular. I think that would probably be up at the top of my list. I, I, I think that you mentioned the Napa murder, like Barry S. scene. Mm-hmm. That is the least rewatchable and maybe the best scene in the film. Yeah. Um, it is so expertly done and so horrifying in such a slow burning way. And then it might be one of the most unsettling murder scenes I've ever yes. seen. Yeah. When he slips behind the tree before you really see yeah. him approaching there's it's incredibly unnerving. It, well that that gets the I still think this you know this for me the scariest thing ever in movies is the shining when you're walking up the stairs and the guy in the bear suit and there's just like the person that is just incongruous and it's there and you so you're so in with those characters and there's the sense of we are by a lake in the middle of a tourist area on a beautiful sunny day. Of course there are other people here. Of course we're safe. It's and always, there is it, no safety. And the movie then, the movie is also a protracted tease of our expectations. There's very little violence except when, oh my God, there's such awful violence. Yeah. And it hits harder. So I think that's not rewatchable, but is worth mentioning. I'm surprised you didn't have the scene um, when Graysmith goes to the the uh, the, cam- the um, projectionist's house mm-hmm. at the end, which, I, I, again, I, don't, I have a hard time watching it, let alone rewatching it. But that scene to me is so exceptional because it's... Um, we almost think the movie is going to let us go. Like we think we're out of that part of the movie. And then it's the most, it's the scariest probably moment in the entire film. It's the most horror movie element of yeah. the film. You know, the other, the, the, the murders are, are serial killer moments. Mm-hmm. And this movie, in part because of the movies that they're talking mm-hmm. about and the sort of like the darkened home and down into the basement. And that feeling is, is um, it's almost like a Wes Craven movie or something. You know, the way that you don't, and when he pulls the, the, the chain to turn yeah. the light off before yeah. Graysmith scurries out. It's pure like if a zombie killed him in that moment, I wouldn't be shocked. Also, he goes home and his family's gone. His right. family is gone. Right. And that's when the, you know, you don't know if the first part was in his mind, but this is the reality of what he's done. But uh, interrogation probably is my pick. I'm going to go with Graysmith and Avery in the bar just because I think that the what elevates this movie beyond a phenomenal procedural is the interactions between the characters. I didn't know he was going to send another code. I just guessed. Just guessed? The first one seemed too easy. This can no longer be ignored. What is that you're drinking? It's an aqua velva. We wouldn't make fun of it if you tried it. It's really where you see those two zeroing in on who they think these guys are. Mm -hmm. And Graysmith being... You know, just on the line of of not ever get it being in on the joke, he sort of gets it, but is is just kind of like happy to be there, mm-hmm. happy to be included. He walks by Morty's that one time, and they're all in the bar drinking and smoking. And there's that great line. It was like, I think they're cutting out at like three o'clock to go to the bar, which is definitely yeah. like my dad used to work in newspapers. It sounds like it was a pretty common occurrence. The way they interact, the the lines of dialogue, which we'll get to later. But I'm gonna go with Graysmith Avery bar scene. Um, Can you do a little bit on why you love Paul Avery so much? Well, I think that um, it's the last possibly unselfconscious Downey performance. Totally agree. It's the year before Iron Man, and it's the year before he becomes Downey Incorporated, uh, and all of his bits become kind of you got to calcify that. You got to put that in amber because that makes a lot of money. So do that. And um, I think that it definitely plays has a, a great parallel to his personal biography in terms of someone who's clearly a genius, but also clearly has a lot of demons. And um, he does, the, he does the work. 
you can tell that Downey understood what he was saying. Uh, he seems very comfortable in the clothes. He feels very comfortable smoking. And then he feels very comfortable as he lets his hand off the leash and he kind of loses it. So there's something about that where I, I think it's actually the, the perfect Downey performance, more so than Chaplin, more so than Tony Stark. It's, it's the role he was born to play, even though he probably never knew it was coming. What's age the best? This is a, a strange thing to ask for a film that actually feels timeless. I sort of mentioned it at the beginning, but the 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 TV-ness, the proceduralness of it ages very well. I think partly and this this is probably this is something I'm going to repeat as we talk about more movies from 2007, which, you know, uniformly The Ringer believes, many people believe was just an exceptional year for American yeah. film. The movies that we talk about when we talk about that year, whether it's it's Zodiac or Michael Clayton or There Will Be Blood, these are movies, and, and Sean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. These are movies that are unnaturally comfortable with ambiguity. Um, they end, I mean, I'm going to spoil them all, guys. Sorry. <laughs> but but There Will Be Blood ends with someone saying, I'm finished and nothing has been finished. Yeah. Michael Clayton ends with my favorite kind of ending, which is the graduate ending, where we see we don't get the triumph. We get the slow dissipation of triumph. While riding in a vehicle. While yeah. riding in a vehicle. Um, no Country for Old Men, real crowd pleaser ending. Exactly. And 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 this one, and this one as ends well. Ends on a so, coin toss, basically. Yeah. We, we don't really know what happened. And then we get some – it leaves us with a deep feeling of, of – the same feeling of, of the same lack of satisfaction that, that many of the characters experience, even though we get a little coda on their lives on the screen. So I think that handling of, of emotion, of expectation, both on a storytelling level and on an artistic level, has aged incredibly well. I think there are probably some sociocultural reasons for what you're describing, sure. which are we're coming right up to the 2008 financial crisis and we're in the midst of a lot of international quagmire mm-hmm. and an uncertainty about kind of what it means to be an American mm-hmm. and the state of the country is not very positive and we're in the midst of the second term of a complicated presidency. And so a lot of the movies that you get and a lot of the art that you get usually in those times are downers or ambiguous, as you say, or flat out bad endings, unhappy endings. Mm-hmm. It's not unusual for a writer like Cormac McCarthy to really become a national figure yeah. during a time like that. You yeah. know, that is the mood of mm-hmm. the country. So I think that's part of the reason. Um, as far as what really aged the best, I think that the transition for Jake Gyllenhaal into great American actor, is it kind of starts here. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of like tips Trial towards, by fire. Yeah. <laughs> as we well, and to. we should talk about yeah. that. I want to talk about but his there, performance. There's something, I mean, with the exception of Prince of Persia, which comes, I think, a couple of years later, basically every other movie that he's taken since Zodiac is complicated and um, masochistic in some specific way. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's something he learned from He's trying to put through the Fincher machine. Still trying to pl- please Fincher, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, maybe we can talk about that, too. I think this is this is the movie, ultimately, where the the myth and legend of David Fincher's endless takes is born. Yeah. This is, he needed 80 tries at a scene where Paul and Graysmith talk in a bar. Yeah. Which... I, Many people are confounded. By. I can I can throw some. This is from the half-ass internet research corner, but I want we might as well talk about Fincher's directing style with yeah. the actors here. Uh, Downey Jr. reportedly left jars of urine around the set to protest the long hours, <laughs> and said, "I just decided, aside from several times that I wanted to garrot him, this isn't talking about Fincher, that I was going to give him what he wanted. I think I'm a perfect person to work for him because I understand gulags." <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal said after making the film, you get a take, five takes, 10 takes, some places, 90 takes, but there is a stopping point. There is a point at which you go. That's what we have to work with, but we would reshoot things. So there came a point where I would say, well, what do I do? Where is the risk? And when, you know, Fincher was sort of confronted with that, he just said, 
I'm not interested in earnestness. The thing I hate the most about acting is earnestness. Mm. And after about 15 takes, I can get them out of that. I get the impression that Fincher is an expert at psychological warfare, and he knows that every mm-hmm. character in this movie also needs to be completely wrung out, and Graysmith in particular needs to be drained of all interest except for achieving his goal. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's trying to do in the performance, too. He's trying to get that out of him, that monomaniacal pursuit of answering something. Yeah. And to and make him do the, the same film, thing over and over again. He has a teacher figure throughout the film, whether it's Avery or Toshi. He's trying to get that sort of affirmation to please them yeah and say is this good enough did i get it did i do it did i solve it and they're on the head daddy it's just like it doesn't matter or i you didn't you know and i'm interested in 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 what you're saying sean about um gyllenhaal because when i saw the movie 10 years ago when i watched it again i do not like that performance very much Mm -hmm. i do not think he is particularly exceptional in a movie that is otherwise pretty exceptional that's interesting i think Uh, his performance i think is the wild card and you either it's not unlike Groff and Mindhunter you know you either yeah. are in with it or you're out it, it, it makes it or breaks it for you I, but thinking about it this way that he was intentionally trying to break a performer of certain habits as a character is broken of his previous existence that strikes me as the kind of you know meta level game that a, a director like Fincher would want to play and, and, and an element he would want to bring to the set and to the film there is something that is too i find too earnest and not quite it's a lot of the other characters like a lot of the other actors seem very comfortable with um subtle gradations or degradation of themselves um watch ruffalo throughout watch downey both not just because of the physical things that he's burdened with as the movie goes on Hall is a much bigger swing there's a point in the movie when he's an eagle scout and there's Mm -hmm. a point in the movie when he's a maniac and I don't buy the transition other than the fact that we, he shows us some episodes along the way. Um, I just find it in general a frustrating performance. But to think about it, as the, we, this is the way we can think about things 10 years on, as a sort of inflection point in his career, making him a better actor, now I support it. But I, it still takes me I think out. what's interesting about his arc is that it's not your typical descent into madness. Uh, he's not a family man who loses everything when we meet him. He's essentially the only person he can really communicate with is his son. And as the film goes on, his fall is not, you know, his, the relationships he, ha- he has with Chloe Sevigny is, it's nice, but it's not, he, it, you never get the feeling like that's the love of his life and that he's throwing it all away. I mean, you really do get the feeling that the Zodiac is the love of his life. It's his true one obsession. Although what's, what's nicely done about that relationship is that in the first moment when he meets her, you think, oh, well, they're simpatico because she's down with this. She thinks this is sure. a, a, an interesting adventure or she's just perverse enough to want to go along for the ride. It's a but quirk. Then, but yeah. she has boundaries. Yeah, she and thinks it's a quirk. So I, I think that, that that's treated with relative care. She's th- when she's like, well, you're, you're a cartoonist. Why are you at a gun range? And that's it's interesting to her, but it's not, you know. Her character is the one character in the movie that... I'm not fond of, and it has nothing to do with Chloe Sevigny, who I think is a borderline genius actress. It's just, it's like a real Fincher problem thing. Yes. I was going to say, we just, could cut and paste your comment right there he, and apply it to any Fincher just Every movie. single one of these movies is just like, the woman is reality facing you and making you not do the thing you want to do. a little do. bit of a nag, but doesn't get in the way yeah. of the narrative. There's yeah. no Fincher movie that stops because of something of a, a, a female character does. Right. You know, the, the Rooney Mara character in Social Network is... She points out some stuff, but then she gets out of the way. Exactly. So that Facebook can start. You know, it's it's not it's never baked into the actual story. Um, 
my thing that aged the best, the one, one thing I wanted to point out is just the details, uh, specifically the insert shots. So I recommend we'll, we'll tweet this out when the, when the show goes up. There is a Vimeo compilation of all the insert shots in this movie, and it's all the, the magnifying glasses, the frayed pieces of authentic mm-hmm. stationary paper from the 70s. Every piece of paper has a different handwriting style, font, the, the level of detail, and then, of course, like all the Ampex tape recording mm-hmm. and the 70s uh, local TV station, TV equipment. And the idea that also a lot of this stuff he just digitally, he put in digitally if he didn't have what he, mm-hmm. he needed to put in there. So just the level of, of obsessive detail is also a real big reason to go back and rewatch this over and over and over again. You'll always notice, oh, look at the watch this guy's wearing. Look at the hat this guy is wearing. Um, is this a movie where anything aged the worst? Does the ending age the worst because it's so unsatisfying emotionally? I mean, do you, do you is this a movie where if the if the last thirty minutes are on, do you stick around? I think the ending is actually pretty gutsy. It does leave you feeling like Arthur Lee Allen is the Zodiac. Mm-hmm. It's not afraid to do that. And yeah. one of the criticisms of the movie when it came out was that that's not necessarily the commonly held belief among everyone. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people who defy that. But the movie probably doesn't get enough credit for saying. This is who I think it is, mm-hmm. and it seems like this is who James Vanderbilt clear, thinks Fincher it is. Fincher investigated this crime. Right. This is the making of this movie is David Fincher and James Vanderbilt and some of the other people working on the movie, working with Grace off of Grace Smith's text, basically investigating this crime. And Grace Smith was involved. Yeah. Grace Smith, you know, there, you, if you go on the internet, you can see Jillian Hall doing press runs with Grace Smith. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, Fincher grew up in Marin County, and part of he, I think he describes the Zodiac as the ultimate boogeyman of his childhood. Yeah, and you can see why he's fascinated. Do you by think this. it's a personal film for him? Does it feel different than his other works? I think that he, as he has said, has a perverted sense of the personal, and so like anything yeah. that is sick right. is personal to him, and any, yeah. any sort of like compulsion to solve things is personal to him. So yes, he tells think- this great anecdote about when the school scare happens. Mm-hmm. You know, when they were the, when he was threatening to shoot school children, and he said he remembered there was a police escort for his bus going home, and he got home, and he told his dad that the police escorted him home, and he was like, "Oh yeah, is that because of the Zodiac?" And he was like. You knew and you didn't come pick us up? <laughs> and that was his relationship with his dad. And then that's yeah. reflected and in the movie later. His dad works from home as a writer. And he was like, you work from home. You couldn't have come and gotten us. <laughs> it, it's, it's really interesting, especially now when um, all filmmakers, and Sean, you, you write about this and you talk about this a lot, sort of have to navigate uh, the bigger Hollywood machine in order to have careers on the bigger Hollywood stage. And Fincher is rumored to be doing as his next project World War Z 2, right? Which is a sort of a – any Fincher movie is going to be a Fincher movie. But even so, in the scheme of things, that does seem like something that artists of his stature have to do to remain artists of his stature. very one for them. Yeah, Yeah, in order to do it. Um, Given all of that, it is really nice to see – and to be fair, he started his career with Alien 3. Mm -hmm. So he has always sort of made – he's had this interaction with the mainstream. But I'm saying all this is to say it's really nice to have this – kind of oddball movie in the yeah. middle of his catalog that so purely is about the frustrations of a obsessive creative mind um, that mirrors the long, uh, just the amount of the duration of chasing something that you care about, the madness of chasing something you care about, and frankly, the inability to predict success yeah. on any project that you you launch into. Um, 
a, a, someone who be, someone who starts as a cartoonist and ends up at a gun range is not a bad analogy to someone who wants to make movies and then has to work in Hollywood. <laughs> so <laughs> it's really well put. And I think the two things that have aged the worst actually have nothing to do with the quality of the movie. They're one, the fact that this movie got made. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a thirty to forty million dollar movie. Sixty five. Sixty five million dollar movie and an, and an Oscar movie, supposedly, but not. But and they screwed the, up. That is yeah. the other thing I was going to say is that it was not nominated for a single Oscar. Yeah. Which two thousand seven, as we've said, huge year historic year also a lot of downer movies that are nominated no country actually wins best picture which is fairly uncommon that a movie that bleak would but no nominations for this movie is crazy so right now it's about to be thanksgiving when we're recording this mm-hmm. so this is we're gonna put this up a little bit later but we are in this moment somewhere ridley scott is reshooting a huge swath of his movie all the money in the world yeah. replacing one of the major performances with another actor all to make a release date that is five weeks away mm-hmm. just thought experiment put ridley scott in the editing room for Zodiac in November, where they're trying to it make would have the, been a trying to make the Oscar movie, twenty-eight minute movie that we thought was too long, and it would have they would have cut out the entire, I and mean, they would have chosen one of the three main characters and made the movie about them. Would he have gotten it done in time for Oscar season? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's just a different thing. Ridley might have. I'm not sure if Fincher would have. Yeah, no, I mean, Hard, would have Ridley done? Yeah, it? yeah. Ridley, Ridley might have. But Fincher, as we know, his obsessiveness is part of what allowed this movie to come out in 2007 and not yeah. 2006. Yeah. All right, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the performances in a second, but first, a quick word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Rewatchables is brought to you by Me Undies. Every year, millions of people receive the least liked gift of all time: underwear. But we still give it to our family and our loved ones who just don't want it. But maybe it's not that underwear is the problem. It's the kind of underwear. So let me tell you about Me Undies, the only underwear that makes for an amazing gift. I love Me Undies. I dare say I may gift myself some of these for the holidays. They're soft. They have a flexible waistband. They're three times softer than cotton. Natural, sustainably sourced fiber. Me Undies made underwear the perfect gift that everyone is going to love you for. It's a goddamn holiday miracle. This year, don't give underwear. Give me undies. This holiday season, to get your exclusive 20% off the softest underwear and socks that you will ever wear, including free shipping and a 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to meundies.com slash rewatchables. That's M-E-U-N-D-I-E-S dot com slash rewatchables. Winter is coming, and Texture App is here to help. Let's say you're hosting friends and you want to impress. Texture delivers Bon Appetit magazine and Real Simple magazine to inspire your event. Anticipating dinner table debates? Arm yourself with the finest reporting from the Atlantic in time. And when the cold winter hits, let Afar and Airbnb mag take you away to inspire your next vacation. No matter what mood you're in, let Texture and unlimited access to over 200 premium magazines to help inform, entertain, and inspire you this winter. And right now, you can try Texture free. Just imagine having your favorite magazines and their back shoes anytime, anywhere. To start your Texture free trial, go to texture.com slash rewatch. If you choose to continue, podcast listeners will get Texture for just $9.99 a month. That's over 30% off the listed price. There are also great gift options available for the holiday season. Go to texture.com slash rewatch to start your free trial today. That's texture.com slash rewatch. Texture.com slash rewatch. Okay, we're back, guys. We're going to get to some awards for the performances uh, in this film. But first, I want to just share some some more half-assed internet research. Mm -hmm. Uh, When the crew arrived to shoot the Lake Berryessa scene, Mm -hmm. the the murder scene in Napa, the oak trees weren't there anymore. Oh, no. That didn't work for Dave. So he flew him in. 
He flew in oak trees Can you by imagine? helicopter, had oh, them helicopter. temporarily planted with water so that they would stay alive, and got his shot. I thought he flew them commercial, and so someone was just getting on a flight up to um, Santa Rosa, and it was like Groot was sitting next to them. I was going to say like Twin Peaks, you know? Oh, that's good <laughs> yeah. too. It's strange because Fincher used CGI to add everything gory in this film. So it's it's interesting what he chose. Like he needed real oak trees, mm-hmm. but he didn't want to use uh, fake blood because he did so many takes, they would have to wipe down the set every time. If so, if he was doing the taxi cab murder, he wanted to take a hundred takes of Mark Ruffalo unlocking a door mm-hmm. and but he if he wanted to add the blood splatter later so this is a film shot on digital is you know the opening sequence is shot on film but the rest of the film is shot on digital is edited on an avid uh rig for for post-production um there's some really cool videos online to read to watch about the post-production of this film but a lot of what you see is actually in post so we talk about all practical effects and the the sort of tangible feeling of the film but a lot of it is digital and uh just a funny note james elroy you know fincher was going to direct the black dahlia wound up being brian de palma elroy when seeing the movie said one of the things that's interesting most interesting about zodiac is that gyllenhaal downey and ruffalo are miserable in the movie it's great cinematic work with that center stage three inadequate and unconvincing performances (laughs) i don't believe a word that they say (laughs) and it's still a great movie so james elroy Never one to hide his opinions. In but, harmony with Andy Greenwald's opinion yeah, on Yeah, well, Gyllenhaal. let's talk about these performances. Yeah. Let's talk about Apex Mountain. Okay. You talked a little bit about how this begins the Jake Assance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Apex Mountain for Jake Gyllenhaal. It's definitely not Apex Mountain. What would you say is Apex I'm Mountain? I'm very partial to the movie Enemy. Yes. That movie, one, I think twin movies, doubling movies, are usually bad or overly complex. That movie is probably triply complex, but still, his performance is incredible. Yeah. Um, so I'm really fond of that. Um, I'm going to go... Go ahead. S- same director. I'm going to go Prisoners. Okay. Uh, Detective Loki. What a choice. What a series of choices by Jake Gyllenhaal in that movie. I mean, the, one of the things that's interesting is that I think a lot of the things that I've disliked about Gyllenhaal's early performances have become sort of... He, 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 he steered into the, into the skid a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Affectations. Yeah. He works hard. Yeah. He is a hard worker. He And he made himself a better actor and a much more interesting actor. There are some actors where you don't see the scenes and some where you do, and both can be good. And I think he, he went from trying to hide them to embracing them, and that made him a better performer. And maybe we can see this movie as the as the bridge. Do you see this as Apex Mountain for him? Definitely not. What is Apex Mountain for Jake Gyllenhaal? Um, big source code head here. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you guys are right. And But interestingly, I, I find everything going forward to be better. I am now interested in Night seeing Crawler, J- Gyllenhaal. Yeah. yeah, I'm interested in his He's movies now. He's great and stronger, which yeah. is a kind of a movie that came and went this year. But he, it's a really, really difficult performance. And it's a, I think it's a story that we've kind of seen before. Mm-hmm. So it, does, it didn't get the praise that it may be due. But he's just consistently excellent. And even though he has all these affectations that you're talking about, Andy, and I don't, it's, kind of, it's a great turning point for him. Apex Mountain for Downey? I think you're right about this. I, I, I gave this some thought. He is al- almost always pleasant and exciting to see, but I think people who know him only in the last decade and know him as a global superstar and a brand and a thing don't know him the way that those of us who remember him before knew him, which was he was always he was the he was the golden child that couldn't couldn't get it done. He was always spoken of in these hushed tones as the most talented actor of his generation, the most exciting actor of his generation, and yet due to his own personal demons and addictions, it just never quite came together for him. Whatever happened to him in 04, 05, 06 was a turning point clearly in his personal life. And then on the road up to Iron Man, 
and everything that came after, Fincher caught him. He caught him exactly as you were saying. At he this caught moment. him off of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which, yeah, is, which is another exactly one in the conversation. Right. High on my list. Another one high on the list. Yeah. I, but but th- this one, I think, marries everything that the people who saw the, the sort of the comet in the sky sure. aspect of him in it. Like he just he's electric on the screen, but there's a gravity to it that would be sort of sluiced away as he became more of a comic book. You could hero. say it was coming. I mean, I think, you know, his performance in Good Night and Good Luck is very solid. And it was a real more controlled Andrew Miller kind of coming in, just eating some innings. Yeah, it was good. He was a fireman. Um, but nothing around this suggests he was capable of what of of putting together this kind of mannered, but also in a lot of scenes, you know, in a lot of the film. I think that his run in the '80s is a little underrated at this point, though. I'm Let's a big a fan of uh, Less Than Zero and great the Pickup Artist, and he's really he really was great out of the shoot and. I think part of the reason why he, his career was considered such a tragedy, basically, in the late 90s, early aughts, when mm-hmm. he slid into some of his addiction, um, is because he had done a lot of stuff that was really good. Maybe he wasn't in a world-conquering franchise like Iron Man, yeah. but he, he was consistently a fascinating performer. You would always be excited to see him when he was used correctly, like um, like Soap Dish. Sure. A movie he's not great in Soap Dish. But he's great in that. And um, Loki Wonder Boys which is a movie ready He's to be rediscovered. And he is yeah. really wonderful in that. But but again, I feel like, it, it, I don't know how, in terms of Apex Mountain, how much you want to consider the larger story in terms of the, the success arc. Mm-hmm. I feel like this fits perfectly in there for me. Obviously, Apex, in terms of a global you know head of a franchise, sure. came a year later. Sure. What about Ruffalo? What God, about Ruffalo, God, though? God, he's good. He he was my biggest takeaway on this rewatch. I was like, this guy is an incredible actor. Yep. He I, he is so perfectly cast in this role. And I was I was talking to my wife about the movie last night, and I was saying I was describing the Dave Toski like myth yeah. and legend, and the fact that he was Bullet, and that Dirty Harry is sort of based on his pursuit yeah. of the Zodiac, even though they changed the character quite a bit. Plus, his character is portrayed in the other Zodiac movies. He might be the most recreated real life cop ever, mm. and. This performance is way more subtle, way more controlled than any of those other movies. He's really cool. The the, the choice that he uses for his voice and the accent say, is right on. He, the way he looks, the floppy bow tie. Like, he just carries the himself. Pants. The, yeah, the, the pants, the trench coat. The, there is a softness to this performance that is, in many ways, a radical choice. Definitely. Because yeah. he is a superstar murder police who doesn't need to prove anything to anyone, yeah. apparently. And that character is supposed to, I mean, in the popular imagination, is supposed to leave with his gun and ask questions later. I mean, this guy literally says, what about due process? Yeah, and he he's, walks out he, of Dirty Harry. I think he's, he's it's, it, you're exactly right. It's like that idea that at all of police, 99.9% of police work is done on the phone or t- asking stupid questions over and over and over again. And that comes across that even this all-star, you know, popular figure is 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 actually just a grunt you know yeah i love that vulnerable moment when he's accused of writing the last zodiac mm-hmm. letter mm-hmm. and graysmith calls his house to talk to him about this and his wife is explaining to graysmith on the phone his relationship to armistead Moffin. comedy star june diane Raphael. That's right yeah exactly and i noticed that last night too which i hadn't realized before but so at one point she's explaining and she's outraged at graysmith calling at this hour about this thing while dave is experiencing kind of the biggest tragedy of his mm-hmm. career and Ruffalo very delicately, gently wanders over to his wife, grabs the phone from her, and hangs it up and walks away solemnly. No words, yeah. very calm. It's like it's an amazing little moment in the movie. Jazz playing in a bathrobe. That's right. It, all the details. That's when he and Fincher really. I, I don't think it's Apex Mountain. I, I think it's hard to say. It's hard to. It's hard to 
top you can count on. It's me. hard to top, yeah. and that's when many people yeah. first saw him. It's hard to top you can count on me. You guys also know in terms of Ruffalo cop performances. Well, this is the thing. Uh, collateral, and that's is you know, still kind of a thing for me. And I know Jill it's a thing and for Ruffalo Chris. were recommended to Fincher by Jennifer Aniston, and Fincher was like, "Yeah, I really liked him in Collateral," mm-hmm. and he is right. Yep. But do you know what Jennifer Aniston liked him in? What rumor has it? Yeah, <laughs> the quasi sequel to The Graduate. That's right. Oh my God, um, is this Fincher's Apex Mountain? Boy, I've, that's the first time. Shots. You just took a step off the rubber and, and, and thought about it for a second. <laughs> I think it's. I think this movie is his greatest accomplishment, but not his best movie. What's his and best movie? And I think that both Fight Club and Seven are iconic movies that people are have like stitched into their lives yeah. in a very specific way. I think um, the Social Network is his best movie and the movie that I like of of his the most. But Zodiac is clearly the movie that it took the most to achieve. And there's something to be said for that, because he's an achiever. It's the most personal movie, yeah. which means a lot of different things for someone as meticulously controlled as Fincher as it might for others. So to me, that makes it the most interesting film. But yeah, it's never going to be as as beloved um, as a Fight Club or a, a Seven or certainly Social Network. Unintentional comedy. Wait, what is it for you? It's Zodiac. Okay. I, I think Social Network actually does is the pop version of Zodiac. Yep. It does a lot of the things that Zodiac does about uh, obsession and greed, but but goes there in a way that's palatable, and I don't know if that's Sorkin or what. You know, I don't, I don't know whether Sorkin's pop instincts make... And the fact that it's basically framed as a courtroom drama with a macro story of a coming of age and co- a college campus drama, like comedy, is... It's sort of Animal House meets... You know, a, a courtroom drama in a lot of ways, Social Network is, whereas Zodiac is just sort of lost inside of itself. It doesn't have any cool framing devices. At one point, it jumps ahead four years, and you're just like, okay. I Here guess, we are. Yeah. <laughs> this, you, these guys just true. got older. Side question. Would Andrew Garfield have been a better Graysmith had the movie been made five years later? He's a little bit more of a Boy Scout, and Boy Scout is definitely the, the, the watch word here. Why not Eisenberg? Yeah, I don't see it. Okay. I think the only thing I don't know I don't actually know what Robert Graysmith looks like in real life, but Jake Gyllenhaal is alarmingly handsome, mm-hmm. even though he has that blinker, that, that wide-eyed eyes, yeah, right. look. He's just a very handsome guy, and Andrew Garfield's very handsome. Eisenberg, you know. Let's talk about um, some of the supporting actors. Okay, yeah. Can I say something about this? Best heat check performance by a role player, aka the Dion Waiters Award. Do you want me to give the nominees, or you just want to? I just want to say before I know you're going to name these names. Yeah. I just want to say that there is a moment in the beginning of this film that, in some ways, I think is the best moment of the film, and it's nothing is happening. There's just a series of names on the screen. <laughs> there is a moment as you are on the runway to this to this movie, and we've already seen the names Jill and Hall, Ruffalo, and Downey, and all of a sudden on the screen you see Brian Cox, John Carroll Lynch. Uh, Elias Codius, Dermot Mulroney, and Donal Logue. Yeah. And you're like, this is the fucking that guy all-star <laughs> yeah. team. Yeah. This is outrageous. I love Dermot Mulroney as Captain Marty Lee. Uh, Brian Kirk Cox as Melvin Belly really makes the most of his moment. And that, um, as a casting what if, it was really the only role that it has any internet uh, leftovers behind it mm-hmm. is that it was for Oldman. Uh, Gary Oldman was was supposed to play that role. So I thought that this was interestingly relevant right now because the reason that he didn't go with Oldman is because he didn't have enough girth to yeah. capture Belli. <laughs> yeah. And right now, Oldman is playing Winston Churchill mm-hmm. with and all his girth. It's also pretty Darkest amazing. Hour. It's like if you can make blood splatter, can't you add a few pounds onto Gary Oldman? <laughs> You'd think. Also, does anyone really care whether Melvin Belli was 250 or 175? Yeah, right. Human 
body fat is as important to Fincher as oak trees. <laughs> right. They are sacred. It is sacred and cannot be recreated. I have more guys that I like I, in this I movie. I have more, too, as Philip well. Philip Baker yeah. Hall. Philip Baker Hall, who I love, who's great uh, as Sherwood, the, the, the uh, handwriting, handwriting specialist, yeah. who, who starts drinking a little bit. I yeah. was really, really into Clea Duvall this time around. Great scene for her. Yeah. He, great heat check scene for her. I love oh, John yeah. Getz yeah. as the as the editor of the Chronicle, Yeah, you know, from um, Blood Simple, a oh, great character good. actor. Um, I mean, Anthony Edwards, you already talked about Andy, is fantastic in this movie. And, unexpe- and unexpected. Yeah. It is I, a I have to give the row, Dion so Waiters to award specifically to Cox. Who am I speaking with? This is the Zodiac speaking. Is there something I can call you that's a little less ominous? Sam. Sam. Is there somewhere we can meet Sam and talk about this? Do you think you need medical care? Medical, not mental. Do you have health problems? He really makes the most of the few moments he has. I love the television interview. It's great. And the way in which he pretty sincerely tries to offer this guy a lifeline and then that incredible screaming sound, and it's the sound inside my head. Guys, but, there's, but, there's more. But also Brian Cox is just the way he... he He's physically hit us, takes hit us up. Yeah, there's Jimmy Simpson, your boy, Jimmy Simpson, show at the yeah. end of the film. Wait, one small detail about that I wanted to mention. This is how obsessive this movie is when you think about it. The character who gets shot in the beginning, played by Jimmy Simpson yes. at the end, is named Mike Majot. It's a very, it's not a common name. When it is reported across the Vallejo PD wire, it's said out loud in the San Francisco newsroom as probably Mayhew. He says it's Mike. I guess this is called pronounced Mayhew. There's a moment where the movie intentionally misleads us because it was likely accurate to the way it was said. That I think is so... Obsession to detail. So specific and odd that it's worth noting. It's a Fincherism for sure. So who gets the award for you guys? There's more! Oh my God! James Legros. Yeah, oh yeah! Oh yeah! <laughs> who is is good and weird in this yeah. movie. Also, Zach Grenier, who is the boss oh, in yeah. Fight Club, is also, I think he is in charge of the Vallejo Police Department. Uh, there's more. <laughs> That there's not. Well, while okay. Sean looks, that's I just it. That's all plea. the actors who were in. For me, it's Elias Codius. Nice. Which has always been a Good always limp. been, a, always been yeah. a tough name to say out loud because I'm never totally sure. Detective Molinax. First of all, Molinax is a great, <laughs> great real name. But that's he is a that guy who, when he is given the ball, can shoot the basketball. 100%. In the, metaphorically speaking, I mean, I I feel like people of our generation knew him first as Casey from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's right. But he's just a guy who looks like a cop and can play these kinds of roles and rarely gets a chance to do it on such a uh, large stage. He I thought he's a great. great serial killer in the movie Fallen, which you oh. may recall oh, uh, yeah. starring Denzel Washington. Gregory That's Hoblet's right. film. That's right. Exactly. Wow, dude. <laughs> Hoblet hive. Uh, okay, did you have a winner or did you? Uh, it's John Carroll Lynch. Okay. That's who true. plays Arthur Lee Allen. And what did you tell this officer? I told him that I'd gone to Salt Point that weekend to skin dive, that I was alone, but I met a couple there. I have their names at home if you want. That would be great, Arthur. Lee. What? Lee. Nobody calls me Arthur. I think in many ways, like, basically made the second half of his career. He actually directed a movie this year. Uh, He directed the last film starring Harry Dean Stanton. Okay. Um, But is uh, is a very well-known theater actor and Hollywood character. Let me ask you this question. Best known in bed with uh, Francis McNorman at the end of Fargo. That's right. He's Norm. Oh, right. Let me ask you this. Does this movie still work if they cast Anthony Anthony Hopkins' huge star as Arthur? Not as well. No. Gotta be an unknown. 
got it has to be it has to be a face it has to be someone who is whose physical presence unsettles you both because of the way he's choosing to perform it but also because of you feel like you've seen him you feel like you could have seen him but you don't know and you're not sure why and also you don't know because we watch you guys would agree with this when we watch movies we bring our own the previous movies we've seen into the room and we even if we're not aware of it subconsciously we often run those calculations that's a famous actor so that's probably an important part definitely because the famous actor is playing it so it's a it's an intentional misdirect throughout that i think is successful and the only time i think i would have remembered him was what you just said andy which is fargo and dispositionally he is completely different in that movie norm is such a friendly face absolutely not a lot of unintentional comedy in this movie i was going to throw uh pong playing in the background on robert downey's houseboat that is i'm glad you mentioned that that is also just that entire scene (laughs) the whole scene write a fucking book he's like i live on a boat I mean, the Pong, the, the, I mean, can we have a category of just like, I, I always think of the, the firecrackers and Boogie Nights. Yeah. Like the, just the, we've made a choice here and it's going to affect every moment that you're watching it and Pong is up there. Yeah. Pong I have no doubt that that is from something that Graysmith said or, or yeah. testified to, you mm-hmm. know, they're, they're, I'm sure that it's true. Uh, nitpicks, we kind of talked about whether Chloe Sevigny's storyline is really served well and I, I think that that we all agree it's not it may even be accurate to what happened in the world that he, he had a wife who he didn't pay enough attention to it's just unfortunate that in every fincher movie it plays out that wikipedia way wikipedia fact check true he married <laughs> melanie and they divorced in 1980 um a couple best quote nominees here uh toshi whoever this is Toski? is it Toski? dave Toski. Toski. Yeah. whoever this is you owe me another lamp when he picks up the phone. Oh my God, that's great. <laughs> that's great. That's a good one. The exchange between Avery and Graysmith where Avery says, what do you do for fun? And Graysmith says, I love to read. And Paul Avery says, mm-hmm. And Graysmith says, I enjoy books. And Avery <laughs> says, those are the same two things. Those are the same things. Avery to uh, Tatoski, hey, yeah. Bullet, it's been almost a year. Are you going to fucking catch this guy or what? Uh, Avery, do you know more people die in the East Bay commute every three months than this idiot ever killed? He offed a few citizens, wrote a few letters, then faded into a footnote. Not that I haven't been sitting here idly waiting for you to drop by and reinvigorate my sense of purpose. Paul Avery. Jesus Herald Christ on rubber crutches. Bobby, what are you doing? You're doing that thing that we discussed. The thing I don't like. It starts with an L. Oh, looming. Um, who won this movie? It's basically between... Downey, Fincher, and Gyllenhaal, though Sean's, Sean's case for Ruffalo is pretty convincing. Why am I always hedging? Maybe this is f- suitable for a movie like Zodiac that doesn't give you an easy answer. Because I think artistically, uh, Fincher, because we talk about it, it's going to be remembered as, his, in many ways, his most interesting film, at least up to date. Uh, to date. But if you think about Downey coming into this film, leaving the film two-thirds of the way through completely. I think he gets yeah. one last glimpse. But his role in the plot, there is no, like, if this movie was made by other people or people less concerned about the ambiguity that we've been talking about, he gets a hero moment. He gets some sort of coda. He doesn't. He disappears from view. We see in the beginning that he likes to have a tipple or two, and by the by the next time we see him, that has won and that yeah. has taken over. To have that footprint on the movie and play that part and have the majority of the quotes that you're mentioning still be from his character, I, I give it to Downey. Yeah, Chris, you talked about how the people involved in this case were degraded and deteriorated by this. And I think that's most clear in Avery, who is basically a hot shot at the top of the movie and clutching an oxygen tank by the end. And I'm not as, I'm not as mesmerized by the Downey performances. You guys, I would probably say Ruffalo I was thinking of the scene where Gray Smith comes back to meet him after they've met at the, at the <laughs> premiere of the movie. And he comes in and he says, uh, Inspector Toski, uh, I'm Robert Graysmith. We met at the movies once. And Toski goes, beat. 
And then he says, I'm sure it was magical. <laughs> and that's just such a cop moment yeah. that like very dry, like I'm unimpressed attitude that I don't know. I, I'm just very taken with that, that, that performance. I like him the best. It's, it's tricky because if you look at an actor like Ruffalo, who has had a magnificent career and will continue to have a magnificent career, he doesn't have like the 50 home run seasons no. like a Downey. He that's never just, goes for it. It's the hallmark yeah. of what makes him such an incredible actor. He's mesmerizing. And he, the rewatching rewards him because I will say, you said what's aged badly. To some degree, Downey Stick has aged badly because we're watching it now through the filter of Tony Stark. Of Tony Stark. Mm-hmm. And of the there, judge. There is more, well, and all of the things that Tony, and due, and due date, and all the things that, that Tony Stark hath wrought. But there is more gravity to it. There's more weight to it. Um, than what it's become, but it's there. The beginnings of it are there, and I think it's harder. It might be harder for some people to slide into that performance, considering the the recency bias. I think Fincher won the movie ultimately because of the level of scholarship that's on display and the depth of, of understanding of the world. You, you talked in the beginning of the podcast about how samey the film feels, like you're not sure where in the movie you are because of the <laughs> similarity of scene to scene. But intellectually, and in, in a way, like, in terms of the narrative geography, I feel like you always sort of know where you are in relationship to the, to the, are they in the paper? Or are they, where, how far from the paper are they when they go here? And it's very precise. That being said, I like to think of Fincher's movies as these wars between filmmaker and actor. And I think some of his less successful movies are, are less successful because the actors gave up. And it's fascinating to see mm. him almost do battle with people like Affleck and Gone Girl or um, or Eisenberg in Social Network. And Downey and Eisenberg specifically seem like they were like absolutely born to be in those these kinds of movies. They seem like guys who could handle the scripts. And, mm-hmm. ha- and, and Downey is interesting. I'm paraphrasing Gyllenhaal, but he said of Downey like after the film came out, he was like, most actors will have like five ideas in a movie. You know, they'll say, I, mm-hmm. I, I have this idea that we should. And he's like, Downey has 50 in a scene. And mm-hmm. it's just such an unrelenting sort of creativity. And it can be crazy making, I'm sure. But you can tell that on take 88, he has another idea, just like he had on take three. We well, probably said the Jesus Christ on crutches thing. That was yeah, probably sure. improv. Right. We don't know. But. Yeah. And, and so it's just fascinating to watch him do battle. And I think that without him, it's a little flat. He's a charisma machine for, yeah, sure. for sure. I think there's one other big winner from the movie. Okay. And that person is Kevin Feige because he got a chance to see two-sevenths of the Avengers on screen together. Mm. <laughs> and Ruffalo and Downey go on to work yeah. together, obviously. As so this film invents modern television. Mm-hmm. It invents the MCU. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it invents Bloodline, because we saw what Chloe Seven you can do. Uh, we have a lot to thank before we wrap Zodiac up, for. Um, before we enter the third hour of our podcast, yeah. about an almost three-hour movie, um, just quick straw poll. Who did it? Uh, I think Arthur. Yeah. I, I think Arthur, but I'm no expert. I'm just taken with this movie. Yeah. yeah so it's worth it, it, it's worth ending on this note that's sort of incredible about it. The, the quote you mentioned, Chris, about like more people die in the East Bay community. Yeah. Any murder is awful. I shouldn't have to say that, but that's true. But the body count of the Zodiac, and so much of it is undetermined. The whole sequence, which is truly horrifying, by the way, we didn't even mention it when the side of the road and the, the tire and the baby that may or may oh, not the have Ioni been Zodiac. The Ioni Sky scene. Another, yeah. another, another heat check. Waiters. Yeah. Just... That one, that's the hardest one for me to watch. But 
but that was never because you you hate hitchhikers because I <laughs> I love say anything so much. Um, no, but but as but, a hitchhiker, but, it's but, difficult to watch. But no, as a, as an auto repair obsessive, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm always tightening lug nuts just whenever possible. That was never proven as to who did that or what even happened. So there's so much there's so many questions out there. This guy, a few people died in a very peculiar way but the legend overtook it and it really became about people just wanting to know because it doesn't make doesn't make sense yeah it's about the it, and and he's talked fincher's talked about this it's it's about whether or not you want justice or you want to know you want to have understanding you know it's also a testimony to branding the oh. zodiac <laughs> created a, a persona created mm-hmm. a culture yeah. around these murders you yeah. know the, the we didn't even really talk about the na- the nature of ciphers and the puzzles that he sent and the way that he wanted attention but then disappeared and why did he disappear and the the concept of naming yourself mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's so that scene where they're in the uh re- the research vault they're in a library and and downey shows graysmith the that watch ad He's like, this is the only time Mm -hmm. this symbol has ever appeared with the word Zodiac. This guy's full of shit. Like, this guy saw his name in a a magazine ad. So Mm -hmm. it's like, stop ascribing this sort of great dark lord power to this guy. He's just a kook, you know? But let's also think about where the movie leaves us. Because for the last time I'll mention Mindhunter. But Mindhunter really is about trying to, in many ways, right the wrong narratively of this movie. Because it's about two people in very Fincher-esque ways with Fincher-esque wives or partners. Um determining that, yes, you can pattern this stuff. Yes, you can crack this cipher. Yes, there are things that you can learn about why people do things that on the surface are unexplainable or horrific. And, you know, across one season, or maybe this is the nature of TV now, across five seasons, they're going to get close to it. And yes, people will be bruised and broken along the way. Zodiac says, nah. It doesn't. It's yeah. Zodiac's like, well, some stuff yeah. happened, and it makes no sense, and there really isn't a pattern, and have a good night. My biggest takeaway from the movie is just that time defeats us. The moment when Toski says... People get old, they forget things, and then we're stuck. Yeah. And that is that to me seems like the ultimate existential takeaway. For Sean Fennessy and Andy Greenwald, this has been the Rewatchables on David Fincher's Zodiac. Zodiac.